Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, I uh, was reading a headline in the Globe and Mail, and the, I mean, the article was very good, but the headline, the article actually was what was talking about the Michael Chong situation in China, but the headline in particular really intrigued me. The headline was, China views Canada as a high priority for interference, says CSIS report. And I, you know, I'm not an expert on China by any stretch, but I'm sitting here thinking Canada is such a generally small player on the world stage. There are so many other countries that have so much more influence and many more people and everything else. Why would, why is China with all the stories we're hearing presumably so interested in Canada. I don't really get it. Well, I know someone who will get it and can explain it. Uh, His name is Charles Burton. He's a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. He joins me now. Thank you for doing this. Good to speak with you. This, to me, is a puzzle. I'm sure there is a very simple explanation, but considering that Canada is, as I say, such a non-enormous factor on the world stage. Why are we, if this headline and this piece are true, why are we of such interest to China? Well, I think that we are a member of the Five Eyes Alliance. And, you know, we do have uh, influence with our European allies. And in, in this case, China really wants to separate out the NATO alliance and um, to prevent countries from collaborating wholeheartedly with the U.S. in trying to uh, um, bring China back into compliance with, you know, the norms of the global community, both in terms of domestic politics and in terms of international behavior. And it turns out that Canada seems to be extremely fertile ground for these Chinese operations. So, you know, it's a combination of us being an important ally of the United States that that uh, should be standing with the United States and China would like to to see separated from the United States with regard to the U.S.-China policy. And on the other hand, uh, it seems that China can do almost anything here in Canada and our government doesn't do a thing about it. You mentioned the five eyes, um, Australia and Canada and New Zealand and U.K. and who am I forgetting? Who's the other one? Um, United States. Yeah, of course, United States. <laughs> Thank you, of course, the most obvious one. So, our, our, I mean, if the Five Eyes is so important to China, uh, we, we heard last week that China, or that the United States had shut down and charged some people with uh, setting up private police stations in the United States. We didn't do anything about those. Are Australia and New Zealand and the United Kingdom being as affected as we are by these Chinese attempts to do things? Well, no, because they do something about it. I mean, Australia has a very effective Foreign um, uh, Influence Transparency Scheme Act that requires people who are receiving benefits from a foreign state, which would mostly be China, as they have more money than the other bad guys that do this kind of thing, like Russia, Iran, and uh, North Korea, uh, to have to expose themselves. So it's really... um, it's really dampened down the pro-China um, element within their policy process. And they have a much stronger uh, national security regime with regard to uh, foreign investment from China if that investment is seen as threatening national security or, or um, you know, to the disadvantage of, of our economies. As, you know, in the past, China's tried to 
to purchase a major construction company, Acon, that would have been working on the Gordie Howe Bridge. Um, China tried to purchase a, a money-losing mine up in in the Arctic uh, that was distressingly close to a NORAD facility and with the port facilities out into the Northern Oceans. You know, it's just a lot of stuff that other countries are on top of that we seem to give a buy. And I mean, the most recent thing has been the revelations that a Chinese diplomat still um, operating out of their consulate in Toronto, Zhao Wei, uh, is, uh, is confirmed by CSIS to have attempted to harass the family of a, a sitting member of parliament, Michael Chong. You know, this sort of stuff you don't understand. Uh, CSIS uh, has confirmed that they sent this report to the government. They read it to Mr. Chong, um, you know, two years later. And uh, Mr. Zhao is still happily working out of the Chinese consulate in Toronto, presumably doing more of this kind of activity that's inconsistent with their diplomatic status. And um, we don't seem to be responding to it in any way that that matters. So, you know, it is uh, one, one could see that there, there are mysterious problems here in Canada over how we are responding to the Chinese threat. And it's very hard to understand why so many you know, allegations of of reports have been published in the Globe and Mail and Global News, which indicate that serious, serious concerns have been raised about China's activities in Canada. And our government so far doesn't, you know, can we point to a single thing that they've done to counter it? So let me go back then to the headline and to the, the reason for this question. When we see, when, when China, if they're saying that Canada is a high priority, is this simply a high priority of convenience then? Because we are the one in the five eyes and maybe elsewhere, they, we are the one place that seems to be fertile ground for this? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Australia has the legislation. Australia is um, united with the U.S. and the U.K., in a in a pact um, in the Indo-Pacific, um, you know, last time I looked, the UK is not an Indo-Pacific country. Canada is. So why is Canada not there? Um, you know, I think it's it's because we just don't seem to be prepared to do anything that would cause the Chinese ambassador in Ottawa to feel upset. And why do you think that is? Because we could, but what, is it is it our fear of economic devastation to our country if China was to crack down economically? Why are we not willing seemingly to do anything? I mean, that's the big question. Uh, you know, really, um, actually, our economic exposure to China is relatively small. Uh, you know, people think that because they see so much Chinese products in Walmart or whatever, that we have a strong dependence on China. But it's about 4% of our external trade um, goes to the People's Republic of China. It's primarily agricultural commodities and minerals for which there is a global market. In other words, if China retaliated, you know, as they did before with the canola seeds over the the holding of Meng Wanzhou, if they retaliated, you know, our, our prices would go down if we lost the Chinese market, would make us more attractive in other markets, and we would shift over to those other markets. So the risk to Canada of standing up to China is actually considerably less than the risk to Australia and New Zealand, who have more like a third of their external commodity trade going to China. You know, China stops um, Australian wines from being sold in China, and that's a significant blow to their economy. But uh, Australia has also been quite nimble in seeking alternative markets for their products. So the Chinese economic coercion has seems to have sort of backfired on China. But, uh, 
you know, why are we worried about economic devastation? I think they're certainly very important Canadian companies who have a lot of influence in the senior levels in Ottawa because they create employment and and uh, investment who, um, are, you know, counsel our government to go easy on China's activities like espionage and influence operations because they know that their Chinese partners will be instructed to to punish them economically if the government does things that China doesn't like. So, you know, there is there is certainly a, an effective lobby for China on the economic basis. I think there's also an effective lobby on the political basis of people who, you know, after they leave government service, go into lucrative board memberships or uh, law firms that do a lot of business with Chinese state state enterprises and so on, who don't want to be seen by the Chinese regime that keeps files on everybody, needless to say, as being anti-China and therefore their post-political career options could be limited. Just before I let you go, uh, that we obviously in this country have a significant Chinese population and so someone might say, well, we don't want to offend them by being too hard on China. And I think that there is a certain level of logic to that. The flip side is, though, many of those people presumably came here because they didn't want to be living in China. They wanted to make a different life. So going easy on China might be the opposite of being offensive to them. Am I missing something? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact is that there are these diplomats like the, you know, the gentleman Zhao Wei that Jesus has said has been harassing Mr. Chong's family, who would harass the families of people in Canada who have relatives in China. And obviously, the Chinese community would like to see that stopped, you know, because it's just horrendous to think that because a, a person of Chinese origin in Canada speaks out against the regime or someone of Tibetan or Uyghur origin speaks out against China, and then their completely innocent elders in, in China are subject to menace and harassment by by thugs working for the Chinese government or, you know, are, are removed from their post or their children can't get into university. I mean, this kind of thing is, is targeting our Canadians of Chinese origin, and I think our government has not been defending them enough. And so, you know, I, I hear you. I mean, there's certainly some elements within the Chinese community that support what they refer to as the motherland. But uh, I think it's a small fraction. Most, uh, you know, Canadians of Chinese origin, many of whom have been here for generations, believe in Canadian values and don't want to be subject to being harassed and menaced and forced to, to, to be subservient to an autocratic regime in a country far away. Charles Burton uh, with the McDonnell-Laurie Institute. We always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Great to speak with you. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I said we were going to be talking about anger and rage. Ben decided to play the one song that generates anger and rage in me. If If you're a parent and you ever had to watch Caillou with your young children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The rage and anger that we're going to be talking about, though, has nothing to do with a small, bald child (laughs) who, quite frankly, would have looked a little like me if I had this hairdo when I was a kid. Uh, Thankfully, that was not the case. We're talking about political rage and anger. There was a really interesting piece in the Hill Times the other day 
said the next election, which is still a ways off, but people are already thinking about it, is expected to be even nastier, if you can imagine that. Because the last one was pretty nasty and the one before was pretty nasty. But we are heading into, or continuing down, I guess, a political path of nastiness. Uh, Kate Harrison is vice chair of Summa Strategy. She's also the parent of kids. She probably also has had to watch Caillou and may understand this rage. I'm not sure. Kate? Yeah, well, I deal with another small ball child, which is uh, JJ from Coco Melon. Uh, and a similar <laughs> similar rage was sparked within me when you played the Caillou theme. <laughs> yes, it's... Uh, I think Caillou could be used, you know, years and years ago when um, Manuel Noriega was a hold up in Panama and they played heavy metal music to make him 24 hours a day to get him out of his combat, they could have just played the Caillou theme song, would have worked. Listen, this is a really interesting story and not not the idea that politics are getting nasty because they already are nasty. We always hear, though, politicians decrying the nastiness of the way things are going. And in the last little while, I have come to the conclusion that I don't believe them. I think politicians love the nastiness because it creates a passion and makes you choose a side and makes you dig in your heels and become on board with one team or the other. This is a way to get people engaged, maybe a horrible way, but this is a way to get people to side with your team. Well, you're always uh, starting from a strong point by saying you don't believe the politicians and don't trust <laughs> their motivations. So agree with you there. Um, I, I think for most politicians now, they see that emotion, not logic, is a major motivator. Uh, and you get at people's emotions, you pull at their heartstrings um, through passion and sometimes anger. And, you know, there's a lot of lip, lip service paid to how we ought not to, you know, import angry politics or American style politics into our system. And, you know, the liberals in particular have been have been focused on that. But this is the same party in government that has been fine to, you know, stoke a lot of division around the vaccine issue, for example, so much so that the prime minister kind of acknowledged the role that he played in that um, when there was the the hearings into the convoy earlier this year. So I, I, I think that this is the new norm. Um, And if you subscribe to the philosophy that contrast wins campaigns, uh, and I'm of the view certainly that that's the case, you're going to continue to see, quote unquote, nasty, impassioned politics from both the right and the left. And I don't think that, you know, we should be guffawed. Uh, or taken by surprise when that happens, because it has been like this for some time. Well, let's use your the, the emotional thing, because I agree with you. I mean, look, Barack Obama became president because people in the States were tired of George Bush, and Donald Trump became president because the Republicans were angry and emotional and decided they were going to take back the White House. And then uh, now Joe Biden, because people were angry. I, I, I'm not arguing politically who may or may not have been the better person, but it seems that whoever can stir up the most emotion and passion and generally anger get the people out to the ballot box and win. Absolutely. And you know that is a far better motivator. You're, you're right to highlight Obama um, in particular because certainly the nature of his candidacy and how, you know, he was going to be kind of the, the first black man elected president, I, that was a motivator in itself. But that's that's one based on emotion, not necessarily logic, right? I think a lot of people went out to support Obama, not because of his policies, but because of who he was and what pe- what he represented and the change he represented from the Bush era. So that, um, I, I think, was the beginning of 
a trend we've seen in modern and contemporary politics around emotion as a driver and almost the um, the the focus on politicians and parties as brands. Um, you know, you've seen leaders have always been important in politics, Scott, but I think Obama uh, and onward, uh, at least in the West, has really, you know, typified a, a, a trend towards the leader being all things to the party. Certainly in Canada, that has been the case under Trudeau. He has worn, for better or for worse, pretty much every single decision that the government has made. And I think that's because people tend to latch on to these brand ambassadors for the party. Um, They're perhaps a little less interested in kind of who their local politician may be, and they're more caught up in the big picture. So it's important that political parties kind of see that for what it is and uh, that their brand association and their leader um, as kind of the, the ambassador of that brand has an emotive message that connects with people uh, for relying on platform to do it. We're going to be uh, falling pretty short, I suspect, in voters' eyes. But even here back in Canada, and again, the, the federal election presumably is not going to be for another couple of years, 2025, although, you know, who knows. Um, but already we're building this, and it seems as though both of the leaders, anyway, Polyev and Trudeau, are they they could theoretically they could sort of mollify the opposition and try and be conciliatory a little and try and broaden the base but it seems as though in both cases their goal is to firm up their base even if it means sticking a pin in the other side's eyeball yeah and i i think both sides are really going to the ends of their uh ideologies uh it at least in terms of where their collective voter is. It, it, I would observe that there is likely a lot of voters in the middle who really aren't sure where they land. And I'm not sure that they're finding a home with either the Liberals or Conservatives at the moment. Uh, I guess both parties are making a calculation at this point in time that um, they might just end up not voting. Uh, and so what's more important in the short term, at the very least, is to keep the dollars coming in. And you tend to do that with uh, motivated voters who agree with you on certain issues or they like how your approach to, to politics is. So certainly, you know, I observe the Conservatives doing that um, on a number of issues and the things they've honed in on. Again, we're, these aren't massive, substantive issues, but it's issues like, you know, defunding the CBC, which has been this kind of legacy perennial issue that Conservatives have dealt with. They they see that as a motivator for their base. And for both the Conservatives and to some extent the Liberals right now. They want to do things that motivate and appeal to their base. And I also think that, you know, for the Liberals, uh, they have some ground to gain on the left in terms of eating into the NDP's um, voter constituency. And time and again, they have come up with proposals and emotional appeals that seek to do just that. And that has been uh, something Jagmeet Singh has had to grapple with. And I don't think that they've handled it particularly well in terms of carving out what space they own versus the uh, space that the Liberals well, encroached on. That's that. So, okay, we only have a, a minute or so here. That was, that's a great point because I got to say, I, I, you know, I'm on Twitter regularly for work and I see Jagmeet Singh and whether on the news or on Twitter, but especially on Twitter, constantly making these comments about, you know, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau has to do the... He is the one person who has the power to make the prime minister essentially do these. He can pull the plug on this government in a second. 
and it's done. I, I can't remember in my lifetime a politician whose criticisms ring more hollow and vacuous than Jugmeet Singh's because he could do something and all he does is stand there and scream from the sidelines. Yeah, and I think that ultimately uh, that, that will be the NDP's problem to, to wear whenever the next campaign is. I don't think people are going to credit the NDP propping up the Liberal government for the Liberal government's successes. I think those that are inclined to think the government has good a jo- uh, done a good job will give that credit to Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. So what's happened instead is, is Jagmeet Singh complaining in the corner, um, not really doing the legwork to carve out uh, issues. I, uh, drug decriminalization comes to mind. Not an issue that I think I'm fussed about, but certainly some on the, the left are. And you could make the case that the, the status quo has really failed people. Um, we don't see the NDP talking about that issue at all. But that's an issue on the left of centre that they could try to wedge the Liberals on, one that their voters may care about. Um, they're nowhere to be found on it. We just see them kind of complaining about Liberal government priorities. And I think that the absence of that contrast, Scott, is really going to hurt them in the next campaign, and it'll just be a showdown between the red team and the blue team. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one, though, just about how angry we're getting already, and it's still a year and a half, two years away. So we've got that to look forward to, two years of the equivalent of Caillou theme songs, political version. Uh, Kate Harrison, not angry, but, you know. We appreciate when you come on. We always love when you come no on. Thanks more, for... No more sunny ways, Scott. That's what you're saying. <laughs> thank you for doing this, Kate. Always love having you on. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots going on these days, especially in the world of television and entertainment. Let me bring in Bill Briou. He, was the, he is the guy behind Briou TV. If you're looking for a great website with all kinds of stuff about television, that's the place to go. Bill, how are you tonight? I'm well. How are you doing? Could, well, I'm I'm good. I was going to say it couldn't be better. I mean, I'm a little sad about the, the whole Gordon Lightfoot thing. I was talking at the top of the show. Like, Unlike a lot of others, Gordon Lightfoot seems like he was meaningful. Yes, and, and Scott, I know the name of the bay. I won't blurt it out. No, don't, but, but um, we'll, we'll let you do it at the end. We'll let you tell Ben at the end <laughs> after you're off, and I'm sure you'll get it. You know, No, I, but, I, but like a lot of Canadians, you know, I know a lot of words to a lot of Gordon Lightfoot songs. I grew up listening to that music. I remember working as a busboy at Ontario Place uh, mm. in 1974 and uh, Carefree Highway seemed to be on every 10 minutes on the radio and uh, all of that great music was fantastic. There was a, uh, you may have it on your website somewhere, there was a clip that I watched today. It's not the first time I've seen it. I saw it a while back, but um, of an old, old interview of Gordon Lightfoot by Alex Trebek back in a day before they both had mustaches. It was like, it's way back. And it was like, there, there's your, there's your real Canadiana watching those two guys talk to each other. It was, uh, it, and there's a million of those ones. There's a million of those things out there. It's a pretty remarkable story. Yeah. And they would be about just exactly the same age, I would think. And Trebek would probably be 84 now. Yeah. And it was early, like it was early days for both of them, I guess. In, uh, in going. Oh. I will say this, that I did today when I heard that Gordon Lightfoot had died, I didn't respond at first because I kept waiting for the res- the Gordon Lightfoot tweet to come out to say, no, no, you folks all did it again. This is the <laughs> third time now. Because twice before he's been you know, killed off on social media and he responds and goes, no, no, I, I'm, I'm still here. But uh, sadly that was, uh, that was not the case. Listen, uh, this is, that's just one of the stories. Another one of the stories that is a really big thing going on right now, just started today 
is the writers, Hollywood writers have walked off the job. They are, there's all a number of reasons pay like in most things with a strike is the big one, but what impact there, there was a time when Hollywood writers, TV and movie writers walking out would have been enormously impactful, uh, because you know, that's all of our shows that would have ground to a halt, but in a time of streaming when Netflix probably has a million hours of stuff you could watch, does, is this going to have any kind of real impact on us? Well, it's a great question, Scott, because things have changed significantly. I think the last prolonged writer's strike was about 15 years ago. And, <clears throat> you know, that's the entire streaming age. You know, that was back before Netflix. So, um, yeah, these Netflix and Disney Plus and everybody else, they have a lot of content. But, you know, it does hold up future shows. Uh, you know, networks can sort of rush on game shows or reality shows and other ways of uh, presenting non-scripted television. But, you know, viewers do get tired of that and they will miss their favorites next fall. Um, I'm a member of the TV Critics uh, Association and we just got an email today that the, the summer press tour may be canceled because... There won't be any uh, stars or producers or anybody to interview because nobody know what shows are coming. So this thing is having ramifications already. Yeah, I just, and your point is well made. I just look at it and I think, you know, if you, again, there was a time when if there was a strike, there was nothing new on TV. There are hundreds probably of thousands of hours that I could watch on the streaming services that I wouldn't necessarily otherwise watch, but that would be new to me. I just, I think this, it almost seems like this will have to go on for a long time for it to really be that impactful. Yeah, it's bottomless. You know, you can go on these uh, free, they call them fast channels like Tubi and Pluto. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can, if you want, you can go back and watch every episode of the Beverly Hillbillies or Frasier or you know, you name your show, like everything is out there that's ever been made. And so if you didn't binge it during the pandemic, there's still a bottomless well of shows out there that you can catch up on. It does seem like it. It does. It it seems like this is going to be a tough one for the writers to, to get a lot of traction on. One one of the amazing things about this writer strike, um, I heard, uh, I read today, I heard and read that immediately the late night uh, shows Jimmy Fallon, yeah. Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, Seth Meyers, all going off the air immediately. And I got to tell you, the first thing I thought of was, okay, I get that you can't have a scripted show. I get that those things are going to be stopping production. How can these people who were hired for their ability to be funny, not write eight or nine jokes for a monologue and do an interview with someone without a whole team of writers. This seems to be the, the least affected by writers that could carry (laughs) on. And yet here we are, they can't do a show. I don't get it. Well, if you think back to the last big writer's strike again, about 15 years ago, that's what Jay Leno did. He just kept right on going. He claimed that he wrote his own jokes and the monologue, you know, he still made fun of the same five targets. You make fun Mm. of the Mets, you make fun of Trump, you make, you know, and and he was able to claim that uh, he did not use any written material, that it was all things that he came up with. Um, you know, and I just think things have changed somewhat today. There's so many more sketches. A lot of them are, um, you know, uh, things that are viral on YouTube later. 
And those are the things where the writers come in. Other late-night hosts, by the way, Letterman, he did take his show off the air in alliance with his writers. He did not want to uh, cross a picket line uh, because he valued uh, the writing uh, talent so highly. So Leno got some uh, you know, complaints about that, but he also did carry on. Yeah, I, I this to me exposes, I don't know, it, it, it seems to expose the late-night hosts as less somehow than you hope they would be. And I don't mean as union bashers or something like that. I simply mean most of, most of their shows are sitting and having a conversation and surely you don't need to have writers to have a conversation. And that, that to me, I mean, one of the people who, now that I listen to his podcast with some regularity, I listen to Conan O'Brien and you go, that guy could easily do his show. You don't need writers for him to do his show. There's talent there. I just, you wonder how much talent is really there with some of these other hosts. Well, to be fair, like some takes Jimmy Kimmel, you know, the first 11 minutes of his show is him basically riffing on the latest news events and it's very specific and I'm sure there's a team of writers, Harvard grads, you know, whoever, who are really coming up with that stuff. He talks so fast, there's a lot of content. Imagine trying to come up with something new every night for 11 minutes. Um, So, you know, it's not just down to, um, the, you know, a, a one single talk show host having conversations. There's a lot of scripted material at the first 10 or 15 minutes of those shows. Last week, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk to you. It's been a while since we've chatted. Last week, uh, we learned, I, I was sitting in an airport when I learned this, that Jerry Springer had died. Mm-hmm. And as, as I was sitting there watching, it was in the, again, it was in an airport, so I couldn't hear anything. You can just see the TV is on. And the, the thought that came to mind is, was Jerry Springer, for all of he, what he did, was Jerry Springer good or bad for television? <laughs> wow. <clears throat> wow, that's a great question. I think that he uh, served a purpose. There was a void. There was clearly an audience for what he did. His show ran 27 years. Um, he himself, though, dismissed it as stupid. You know, he, he, he put his own show down. Uh, I think he had some misgivings about it. Well, I mean, he'd I been successful. He'd been a politician. He'd been the mayor of, what, Cincinnati before that. He was. And, you know, he decided not to run uh, for the Senate at one point, thinking that, you know, I'll never be able to live this down, this stupid show. Um, he'd, he'd be elected president now. Uh, mm. You know, this is, Could be. it doesn't matter. As long as you're famous, if it's notorious, it doesn't matter. Look at Donald Trump. Look at the... There's people on in the House uh, of Representatives of the U.S. You know, there's the one uh, House uh, uh, member who was on. She's 36. She's about to be a grandmother. This is someone who'd be a Jerry Springer guest. You yeah, know, like yeah. It's, well, it hasn't it's, changed. What's amazing is so I mean, Jerry Springer has obviously a notorious reputation for his show because it was. You know, it was pretty, uh, it was scraping the barnacles off the bottom of the boat. Let's be frank here. But we forget, I think, that back in the day when he was starting, there was someone else who was starting who was talking to, you know, lesbian little people and whatever. And it was like, and that was Oprah. You know, yeah. Oprah started out basically doing what Jerry Springer did, almost the same, and then decided, ah, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, although what where it wasn't her, quite the same. She turned did a sharp turn toward more aspirational programming. Yes, yes. Um, Springer stuck with and his the company that owned his show, I think it was Universal, 
basically said, more mayhem. Keep going with the circus. So, yeah, he wouldn't have been hurt by the writer's strike because it was just people throwing chairs or punches. And then at the very end, you got Jerry's moment where he said for 30 seconds something about what happened, and that was <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, his, his mor- moralizing at the end of what, what, what had just happened. We're going to put some sort of context on this to make yeah. it sound like it wasn't just for, you know, ratings. Um, but, I and, like, again, it's hard to... When I said, was he good or bad for television? Clearly he was good at what he did because he outlasted Morton Downey Jr. who did the same thing and Geraldo who did the same thing. And, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Who, uh, uh, who was married to Connie Chung? Um, oh, uh. Yes. You are not the father. Terrible. Uh, We're both blanking. But I I know who you mean. There there wasn't just Jerry Springer. No, there were lots. There were a lot. At one time, there were a whole bunch of them. He just happened to emerge as the best at it. And, you know, so so when I say, was he good for television, I, 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 you know, it's hard to quantify how he's good for television other than the fact that he was good at television, I guess. Was he bad for television because he brought the bar down so low, well, it it may not have been him who brought it down that low. He was just one of them who was down there to begin with. His accountant would say he was good for television. (laughs) You know, he got, he got very rich from doing that. But I think, um, the bigger question is, was he bad for society? Uh, you really can run a through line from Jerry, Jerry, Jerry to lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. And I think the success of Trump uh, the idea that uh, no matter how much notoriety, it won't really hurt you. Um, you know, those are seeds maybe planted by Springer. Interesting. Uh, and certainly by his show. Before we let you go, there is, uh, this is an auction that, boy, I wish I had money. I wish I had real money because I would love to get involved in this auction. There's a guy yeah. by the name of James Commissar. Have you heard about this? Yes, I have. Yeah. So James Pretty Commissar cool. is, uh, I had not, he is a, the collector of collectors of Hollywood and TV artifacts. And he's decided that he's not been able to, as I understand it, get a museum together, which was always his goal. So he said, well, forget it then. I just, you know, I got to get rid of this stuff. So he has in his possession, part of his collection is the Tonight Show set from Johnny Carson, the bar from Cheers, the um, the pink outfit that Barbara Eden wore and I Dream of Jeannie, Archie and Edith Bunker's living room set from All in the Family, stuff from the Superman show in the 50s, uh, Breaking Bad stuff, uh, Batman from the 60s, on and on and on. I mean, it's an unbelievable connection or collection here, Bill. I mean, the stuff that he's talking about putting up on the auction block, I, I say, if I had money, I would be there. There's some stuff that is just so cool. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, there are museums around North America. There's a Max Factor Museum on Hollywood Boulevard, and it has some of these things, you know, and they rotate things in and out. And people have private collections, and they have stowed away different things. But there's no, you know, uh, Smithsonian of television that's just dedicated to have, every, even though the Smithsonian has Archie Bunker's yep. chair, for example. And the Fonz's jacket, yeah. Yeah, and the comedy, there's a wonderful comedy museum in um, northern uh, New York State uh, that has some of these things as well. But there isn't one, like in L.A., they've just opened a spectacular Academy Museum. Um, so, yeah, it's down to people who, who 
retrieve these things that otherwise would have been trashed. I remember being in New York City when David Letterman's show ended, and the next day there was a dumpster on 52nd Street, and that set that was behind him that had those bridges and trains and everything was smashed up and thrown into that dumpster. And I thought, that's criminal. I would have, I would have taken a bridge home. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Who wouldn't want that? I can't believe that there is not somebody in California who would look at a collection like this and say, people would come. I mean, not to sound too Field of Dreams-ish, but, you know, people will come, Ray. Uh, surely for the chance to sit on the Tonight Show set, I mean, almost, almost like the, uh, was it Donahue? What was the set on, on Seinfeld that Kramer had? The, uh, the Mike Douglas show set. Um, yeah. you know, people no, the, would do this. There, there, there was, um, the Academy of Motion Pictures had a, uh, an Emmy museum right in Beverly Hills. And I remember going to an, uh, an event they had and they had the booth from the restaurant, uh, that friends where they all hung around. Yep. Um, they had um, garments from ER. They had various props, famous things from TV shows. And, um, you know, I've been on a lot of real sets, and they're, they're, it's intricate, all the couches and chairs and everything is crazy. But they had this exhibit, and it was very cool. This was about five years ago, and now that building, which was spectacular, was sold because it's in Beverly Hills. And they can put a condo there that will be, you know, they probably sold that property for hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's the problem is, uh, will enough people come and what will they pay? And it's just a business. It is, uh, it is a business. I, I, again, I'm going to, um, there's a, a website here for people who are interested in seeing it. It's called Commissar Collection, C-O-M-I-S-A-R collection.com. And it's got pictures and a list of the things that are going up for auction and I, as I say, I, this is, this is one of those ones where I look at it and I go, man, I wish I had dough because, uh, I know I would find a few things in this that I would want to find somewhere to put it in the house. I don't exactly know where, but, uh, <laughs> I would find somewhere. Um, maybe if you and I pool our resources, we could bid on one of Johnny Carson's pencils. You know what? I, I yes, we could do that. Or, uh, I mean, I'm looking here and there's a picture of him standing in front of the cheers bar, the actual wooden bar. Yeah. I, my basement could fit that somehow, some way <laughs> I would put that in the basement. And, uh, anyway, that's, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing half a million bucks is uh, probably going to be the starting bid, something like that. Uh, Bill Bree, we listen, we always love having you on here. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. My pleasure. Anytime. The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.